The Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman asked a question that I'd like to pose to you this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something that will make you just a bit uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask if you would do it. And that is if you would raise your hand in response in terms of how you answer the question in your own mind. So here's Kahneman's question. If you were to buy a ball and a bat, and together they cost a dollar ten, and the bat cost a dollar more than the ball, how much did the ball cost? How many of you said five cents? Let me see your hand. How many of you said 10 cents? Let me see your hands. How many of you have heard Kahneman's question before? Let me see your hands. Okay, so a few of you, so we won't count those three or four who have. Now let me ask you to do a second thing. This is something I rarely ask people to do in a sermon, but I'm going to ask you to do it today. Remembering that simple question. You buy a ball and a bat. Together they cost $1.10. The bat cost a dollar more than the ball. How much did the ball cost? I want to take you, ask you to take maybe 30 seconds to talk to one person or two people next to you and see if you can decide how much it cost. Okay? As a group. So right now, talk together. Okay. Now let me ask you the question again. So you've had a chance to consult with someone seated beside you. Remember, very simple formula. Together they cost a dollar ten. The back cost. <laughs> what about tax? <laughs> no tax in this case. <laughs> The bat cost a dollar more than the ball. How much did the ball cost? So after talking in groups, let me ask you again. How many of you said the ball cost five cents? Let me see you raise your hand. Wow, that's a lot more. How many of you still said it cost 10 cents? Let me see your hands. So still fair number of that. Well, if you got it wrong, don't feel bad. Kahneman says that 50% of the students at Harvard, at Princeton, and at MIT got it wrong. Furthermore, he says, that in other more, shall we say, mundane centers of education, over 80% of students got it wrong. So what is the right answer? The right answer is that the ball cost five cents. Because if you think the ball cost five cents, and the bat cost a dollar more than the ball, would make it a dollar and five cents, and you add five cents and a dollar five together, and you have a dollar ten. Now, Kahneman's hypothesis is that people at times answer questions too quickly, spur of the moment, that if they will slow down and focus and concentrate, they will often do much better. I want to have the temerity, the audacity, 
to add to Kahneman's hypothesis, my own hypothesis, and that is this. We are better in community. When we talk together, when we think together, when we wrestle together, when we live in relationship, we are always better off. So today, we've talked about you, we've talked about your ministry, today I want to talk about your relationships. And as we focus on your relationships, you're the pastor, there was a period of time, in fact I grew up in this period of time, when we pastors were told, you can't have friends, you cannot have friendships in the church. I want to talk to you about your friendships and your relationships. And in order to do that, I want to go to Paul's letter to the church in ancient Philippi. Philippians, the second chapter. I want to read a passage. I want to reread what Joseph read so well this morning from Philippians 2. But before reading it, I want to say a word or two about it. When we read what we'll read here this morning, it seems just a bit out of context. It seems like Paul is doing business here. He does business often in his letters, but he often saves it till the end of the letter. For example, in Romans, he comes to Romans 16 after maybe the most powerful missive ever written on the gospel. He comes to Romans 16 and he starts to do business. Well, say hi to Aquila and Priscilla. They've been with me in the battle. And Rufus and his mother, say hi to them. She was a mother to me as well. And Junius served with me as a fellow apostle in the gospel. And he starts doing business. Greet this person and that person, Tryphena and Tryphosa. And you realize he's talking about not a list, but his church. He often does that in his epistles. What's a bit surprising here in Philippians is that we, as we read what he says, he seems like he's doing business. But he's doing it in the middle of the epistle. Doesn't save it for the end. Does it in the middle. But I want to suggest to you that hovering over this passage, in fact, woven into the fabric of the passage, are three relationships that are vital in living healthy lives. Three relationships that are essential for pastors. So Philippians 2, I start reading in verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves 
could not give me. If you linger over this passage, you quickly see the relational strands woven all through its fabric. Three relationships, I would suggest, are vital. Three relationships that exist in this passage. Three people that I need in my life. Three people you just may need in yours. First of all, there's Paul. Paul, the one who penned the passage. Paul, the one who was the leader, the mentor, the guide, the apostle. I need a Paul in my life. I need a person into whose footprints I can place my own feet, whom I can walk and follow with confidence. Somebody who can give me guidance and direction, give me inspiration, give me instruction. Somebody upon whom I can lean for wisdom when my own wisdom is insufficient. I need a Paul. And I think you may as well. I will have to tell you that I've had some Pauls in my life that have framed me, that have formed me, that have fashioned me. When I think of Paul in my life, I have to start with my mother and my father. The two human beings who gave me life and who bent the twig in a Godward direction, who gave me peerless examples in service and ministry. Thank you, Mom and Dad. But it doesn't stop there. When I think of Paul in my own life, I think of certain relationships formed right here in this building. I remember sitting in the classroom. Tim Evans is here, classmate of mine back in those days. I remember sitting in the classroom, Tim, and listening to Dr. Ivan Blazin talk with us about the gospel in Romans, coming to fresh understandings, new understandings of the gospel. Little did I know in that classroom that one day I would have the privilege of serving on the same faculty with Dr. Blazin in Loma Linda. Little did I know that the day would come when Dr. Blazin would say to me, call me Ivan. I said, I can't. <laughs> I can't call you Ivan. Call me Ivan. I'll try, Dr. Blazin. No, 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 call me Ivan. I felt at that moment like saying, I can't call you that. You're my Paul. When the time came for us to make a decision, when we were invited to lead the staff at the church where I'm privileged to serve, once I'd spent time on my knees, spent time with my wife, spent time with my parents, there were three people with whom I spoke. At the top of that list, I. We all need a Paul. There was another Paul in my life. Not quite as close relationally, though we had a good relationship. But it was more through his voice and through his pen than anything else. I mentioned him earlier, Morris Vinden. Morris Vinden helped form my thinking about righteousness by faith. Maury was pastoring at the Azure Hills Church. I was teaching at the School of Religion there at Loma Linda, pastoring part-time in Corona. And I got a phone call one day. I answered the phone, and it was that familiar, resonant, deep voice. The name is still Vinden. I said, well, hello, sir. How are you? 
And he said to me, the Lord has shown me that you are to preach at Azure Hills Church on May 26th. Is the Lord our Lord one Lord? <laughs> what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> so guess where I was on May 26? Trembling up to the pulpit because I knew that a Paul stood there week in and week out. You need a Paul in your life. Somebody on whom you can depend. Somebody to whom you can turn. Somebody who can help guide and form your life. You need a Paul. It's the, it's the TV personality, Dr. Phil McGraw, who writes this. He says, you have encountered hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in your life who have had an impact, yet research has shown that there are as few as five truly pivotal people who have left indelible impressions on your concept of self and therefore on the life you live. Five pivotal people. Pivotal people in, pivotal people in your life can be those who give you words of encouragement at critical times, who open up opportunities you didn't know existed, who unravel for you a problem you thought had no solution. They can be people who step up at critical times with great acts of courage and support or can a thousand, in a thousand humble, simple ways demonstrate their love and concern for you. Sometimes there are people who recognize in you a particular talent and inspire you to develop it. They may even be people who don't, you don't know very well, but whom you watch from a distance. And the way they live your, their lives challenges you to live yours with the same qualities. They can be people who love you when they are not very lovable. Five pivotal people. Five people named Paul. So who is your Paul? As I got to thinking about these things, uh, one of the writers that had an influence on me was Howard Hendricks, taught at Dallas Baptist Theological Seminary, Dallas Seminary, rather. I want to read you what Hendricks writes about his own life. Hendricks says, I was born into a broken home in the city of Philadelphia. My parents were separated before I was born. I never saw them together except once when I was called to testify in a divorce court. I'm sure I could have lived and died and nobody would have particularly cared except that a small group of believers got together in my neighborhood to start an evangelical church. That small group of individuals developed a passion for their community. Walt belonged to that church. And he went to the Sunday school superintendent and said, I want to teach a Sunday school class. The superintendent said, wonderful, Walt, but we don't have any boys. Go out in the community, anybody you pick up, any boys you find, that's your class. I'll never forget the day I met him. Walt was six feet, four inches tall. He said to me as a little kid, hey son, you like to go to Sunday school? Well, anything that had the word school in it had to be bad news. I wasn't interested. Then he said, hey, would you like to play marbles? Well, now that was different. Would you believe we got down and played marbles and he beat me every single game? I lost all my marbles early in life. But by the time Walt got through, I didn't care where he was going. That's where I wanted to go. For your information, he picked up 13 of us boys, 19, pardon me, 13 of us boys, nine from broken homes. Today, 11 are in full-time Christian work. 
And Walt never even went to school beyond the sixth grade. That's the power of a mentor, says Hendricks. You don't need a PhD to be used by God in the ministry of mentoring. Have you ever asked who has most affected my life? Think about the people who made a difference. What did they do? How did they do it? Why did they do it? Answer those questions and you'll be hooked on mentoring for the rest of your life. You need a Paul. I need a Paul. Not a single one of us would be here today did we not have that person in our lives. This passage literally reeks with relational wisdom. It tells me three people I need, and I believe three people you need. We need a Paul. But there's a second person, a second relationship in this passage. We need an Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. That's not a common name. In fact, in the entire canon of Scripture, his name appears only in Philippians. Now, some have said, well, maybe he's the same as Epaphras. But some research into what the different scholars say assured me, no, it's not the same person. Epaphroditus, critical in the life of the Philippian church. And yet, did you notice how Paul referred to him here? This man whose name we have so seldom heard, that when we read it, we actually aren't quite sure how to pronounce it. That's how unfamiliar he is. And yet, did you notice how Paul speaks of him? He calls him my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger. Messenger of the Greek, apostolos. Paul is saying, he's my brother. We walk together. He's my fellow soldier. We're in the battle together. He's my fellow laborer. As we're laboring in the Lord's vineyard, Epaphroditus and I stand shoulder to shoulder. We're that connected. If you want to know more about their relationship, he tells the Philippians, Epaphroditus got sick and he almost died. And I know that you were very worried about him. So I want you to be assured he's okay. But he says something more. He says, God spared me sorrow upon sorrow. If I had lost him, I would have been heartbroken. The sorrow would have rolled in like waves of the sea. So I praise God that Epaphroditus is still here. He's my brother. We not only need a Paul, somebody whose footsteps we follow, we need an Epaphroditus, somebody with whom we do ministry. It was the retired general, General S.L.A. Marshall, who did much research on combat soldiers in active combat zones, who after all of his research, all the interviews he had with these infantry men at that time it was, with these infantry men, after all of that, he said something very simple. He said, I have come to believe that what allows a soldier to push forward in battle more than even the weaponry he has is the near presence or even the presumed presence of a comrade. I'm not in this alone. It isn't just me. I've got somebody who's in the battle with me, somebody who fights alongside me, somebody who walks with me. So I have to ask you the question, who is your Epaphroditus? When the walls cave in, which they will, 
When the foundations are moved, which they will be, when you have uncertainty about your future, which you most certainly will have, when it seems like everybody in the pew is questioning you, to whom will you turn? Who is with you in that battle? Who walks at your side? It was that prince of pulpiteers, Bruce Thielman, great Presbyterian preacher, who said it in a sermon. I was pastoring. I was a single pastor in Austin, Texas. I was going through a period of time when I felt deeply alone, really struggling. And it was at that period of time that I got a cassette tape in the mail. It's called Preaching Today. And on that tape, that month's edition, had a sermon by Bruce Thielman called The Comradeship Christ Commands. Based on Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. He preached a sermon that, that seared itself into my soul. There's one line all these years later that I continue to carry with me from Thielman's sermon. He said, as a follower of Christ, you should never have to bear anything alone. If the church is the church, if the relationships to which we are called in Christ are what they are intended to be, robust and vital and vibrant, then none of us should ever have to bear anything alone. It was water to my soul. And I started tentatively reaching out to a few close friends. Tim can tell you, Tim and I are friends from those days, that we made friendships in this building that endure to this day, including his and mine. People to whom we can turn with confidence, with assurance, with certainty that there will be an Epaphroditus on whom we can lean. I think of the longest-serving Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn. Served for many years in a divided country. But Sam Rayburn believed in friendships, believed in relationships, deeply believed in them. Thus it was that when the news came er, in the wee hours early one morning that the daughter of a dear friend of his had died during the night in an accident, Rayburn was there as the sun was coming up, pounding on the front door. This was a friend with whom he was deeply connected, whom he knew well. He shared often about what was going on in his life and in his work. That morning as he pounded on the door, finally the friend managed to stagger through the fog and open the door and look out and say, what are you doing here? Recognizing him as the speaker of the house, knowing the kind of schedule he had. In fact, the friend, to his credit, in that Fog after the death of his daughter remembered a key appointment the speaker had that morning. He said, you're supposed to be eating breakfast with the president. What are you doing here? And Rayburn said, I called the president. I called that off. I heard about you. I had to be here. So my question is, who is your Epaphroditus. On those dark nights of the soul, when you wrestle alone, when the midnight chimes ring, 
Is there anyone you know well enough, you are a fellow laborer closely enough with, that you can punch in the numbers and know that they won't need an apology that you call them at that hour? Who is your Epaphroditus? We all need three people in our lives. We need a Paul. We need an Epaphroditus. But there's one more relationship in this passage. We need a Timothy. We each one need a Timothy. Maybe a whole group of Timothys. Did you notice how Paul referred to Timothy here? My dear son in the faith. If you read how he refers to Timothy at different places in his writing, my young son in the faith, my dear son in the faith, or as he says here in this passage, I have no one else like him. There's no one in my life like that. I have poured my life into Timothy. I am preparing to hand the baton to him at some point in time. He is coming along in the footsteps behind me. And Timothy becomes the increasing object of my interest, my prayers, and my discipleship mentoring. We all need a Timothy. I'm not talking about a Timothy because you happen to be the pastor and this has to be your job. I'm talking about a Timothy into whom you pour your life because God has placed something on you and you are going to give it as freely as you've received, just so freely you will give. Timothy, dare I say that if you now or in the future will have little crumb crunchers in your house, little rugrats around your knees, look no further for a Timothy. It must begin there. I think of my own kids, Austin and Miranda. And I can still remember that, that they gave me a little plaque on one Father's Day. I think they were still a bit young to fully grasp it. They understood some of it. Still sits in my office to remind me. Some of the words are these, walk a little plainer, Daddy, said a little child so frail. I'm walking in your footsteps and I don't want to fail. Talk about a burden to which we bring to God in prayer. Saying, God, please make me faithful with these two Timothys in my life. But it spreads beyond that. I know that because I've been a Timothy. I think back to my teenage years. We were living in Guadalajara, Mexico. My dad was pastoring a very unique church in Guadalajara. It was a church made up almost exclusively of medical students and their families. Medical students who for one reason or another had not gotten into medical school in this country and they had traveled to Guadalajara to study medicine there. And so there was this church, 250, 300 people, English-speaking church in a Spanish-speaking land medical students. It was a place tailor-made for me to turn my back on the church. You say, why? Well, the answer was very simple. The people there were all older than me or much younger than me. There were months, there were years when I was the youth department. Me. It was tailor-made for me to say to mom and dad, 
I don't want to go to church. There's no one there my age. There's nothing there that interests me. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to go there and just be myself. Only me. Tailor-made for that. But something happened in that church. Something happened to a number of men. I thought they were older. Now I look back, they were 30, 32, 35, 40. They were young men. I thought they were old. Something happened in the hearts and lives of a few of these busy medical students. You want something harder than going to medical school? Try going to medical school in a new language. You want to talk about stress? They were stressed to the limit, trying to, trying to somehow adapt to a different culture, trying to learn a new language, trying to digest all of the scientific information necessary to be able to pass boards back here in the United States. And yet, there were men in that church who would call me. Randy, we're going camping this weekend. Wouldn't be the same without you. Someone would come up to me at worship. Say, Randy, if, if, if it wasn't Sabbath, I'd ask if you want to play football with us tomorrow. <laughs> I'd say, if it wasn't Sabbath, I'd say, absolutely. <laughs> Nathan would call me and say, I'm going downtown Guadalajara. To have, they have a new gym, new workout gym, new weight gym. I'd love to have you come along. And do you know that one person at a time, one man at a time, they poured into this Timothy to the degree that being the only youth, I loved church. Because I got to see them. I got to talk to them. I got to feel like I mattered. You know that it was in that church in the context of those friends that I felt the dawning certainty of a call to ministry. What would it have been for this one preacher had there been no pause? Had there been no one to say, we want you on the field with us. We want to play on the court with you. We want to camp with you. What would it have been? Make no mistake about it. We all need Timothy in our lives. You go from this place to go into full-time ministry of some kind. Many of you as pastors. You go to a place where they will pay you to do these kinds of things. It will be so easy for that to merely become a job. Something that you just do, the hours that you have to do them, and then you get away, and I don't want to see church people. I understand that. I shop at different shopping centers, at different grocery stores where I don't think I'll run into people I know. I know the stress. I know how you think I just have to have some space. I get it. But I also know this. There are people out there whose futures are being formed by how we respond. There is someone out there today who may stand and preach on this platform one day. If you draw her, if you draw him under your wing,
We all need a Paul. Somebody who leads us, who guides us, who pours life into us, who gives us a mentoring example to follow, who can say, as did the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. We all need that, Paul. We all need Epaphroditus to assure us we're not alone in this battle. We can turn here for support. This is the kind of relationship that is so meaningful that if we lose it, sorrow upon sorrow will wash in upon us. And we all need a Timothy, someone into whom we pour our lives. We give freely what we have been freely given. So I ask you, Who's your Paul? Who's your Epaphroditus? Who's your Timothy? In fact, I ask you one more question, which just might be even more important. Who is there who, when asked, who's your Paul, your Epaphroditus, your Timothy? Who is there who, when asked that question, answers with your name? Gracious God, we thank you for the robust relationships that are intended to exist within the body of Christ. We thank you for your call on our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy. Please open our eyes to those relationships in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.